Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect on uh, the role of former prime ministers with a particular focus on Boris Johnson, who nearly a year after his fall is continuing to make life nightmarish for Rishi Sunak in various different ways. Um, And I'm going to pose the question, can the Conservative Party recover while Boris Johnson is politically active, but as ever with all of us in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, there is an added dimension. We seek context. We yearn for context to make sense of things. So I will contextualise with the role of other former prime ministers, because I think it is a valid question to pose whether any Labour leader can fully flourish, can fully be his self or herself, while Tony Blair is still politically active to cite another former prime minister. So we will delve deep on uh, this theme. Uh, We have some fantastic questions uh, on a range of topics, which again, contextualise, go back a bit, as well as being ragingly urgent in their themes. Uh, Before all of that, a couple of uh, notices. First of all, those of you who kindly subscribe to uh, Patreon, there will be a monthly bonus podcast coming up. Uh, It's going to be one more troublemaker, political troublemakers who opt for a role in political life which is not necessarily to do with the fulfilment of their own personal ambition to be a minister or, of course, prime minister. You might have heard the podcast from last week on the prime ministers we never had, Um, but who pursue principle and conviction and in doing so cause trouble. And there will be uh, one more in this sunny month of June before we move into another theme. And if you were to subscribe now, you can look back and there are bonus podcasts on a range of series from cinematic general elections to, uh, well, all sorts of things. Um, And uh, yeah, thank you for subscribing. And you get bonus mugs and all other kinds of things if you do. Um, Also, a reminder that I'm thrilled that the Edinburgh Festival is looming and Rock and Roll Politics, well, me, will be there live um, for the last two weeks, beginning on Sunday, August the 13th, a show every day. Each show will be different, exploring different themes um, with the help of all of you who turn up. Uh, It's a dance between us. Not actual, metaphorical, really. Anyway, uh, tickets will be available on the link or at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe website. Um, Yeah, God, it's moving into view. You know, there's a sort of strange rhythm to the year, don't you find? Punctuated by certain events, and one of them is the Edinburgh Festival. Okay, um, now let's move on to our theme for today, uh, which relates to Johnson's hyperactivity, dominating the news um, with his activities in relation to the COVID inquiry, which he, of course, himself set up. Once again, tormenting Rishi Sunak. There are many layers to this particular story or saga, partly one about memory and politics. Is the drama over COVID already 
seemingly so far away that even the inquiry itself now becomes irrelevant, uh, and that those who were at the heart of politics during COVID, uh, what they did then is of no longer much interest. And to read some commentators, uh, you would work on that assumption. Oh, I just want to forget the whole thing. It's all over now. I've had it with Partygate. I've had it with this. I've had it with that. Or some columnists saying, oh, an inquiry is a waste of time. Um, and so this is where memory is so important in politics, because if voters forget quickly, politicians can get away almost literally with murder. It is important that memories of recent events and the conduct of government remains absolutely at the heart of politics, or else politics just becomes a series of what AJP Taylor mischievously once described history as one damned event after another. So it's interesting how some are unmoved by the need for an inquiry and for that inquiry to have as much information as is possible to reach conclusions of depth. Um, although those who predict a big political fallout from the inquiry can forget it. That will not happen because it will take so long for it to report that politics will have moved on by then. There won't be a big immediate fallout, and it never is with these inquiries, but it will be a verdict of significance on all the players who were there at the time, and hopefully there will be lessons drawn about how Britain is governed in all kinds of respect, how it manages health provision, social care provision, as well as how this particular cast of, uh, on the whole, miscast characters from Johnson upwards or downwards managed one of the biggest crises since uh, 1945. Um, so there's that dimension. The other one, of course, which is very uh, much being debated at the moment, is this one about the validity of uh, an inquiry having access to whatever WhatsApp messages it demands it needs to see, and then for it to judge uh, what is redacted and what is not, and so on, when it's all published in about 500 years' time. This is a complicated debate. I have some sympathy with Sunak. I mean, there's been a weird, talk about metaphorical dances, there's been a weird metaphorical dance between Sunak, the Cabinet Office, and Johnson over the release of this material. Uh, Johnson at first reacted with horror at the idea that this material have to be released. He then claimed he was handing it all over. It then emerged that it was only from one phone after much of the lockdown had already ended. Um, and meanwhile, He's now condemning Sunak and the Cabinet Office for not revealing all. Uh, Sunak and the Cabinet Office don't want to reveal all WhatsApps, and it is really complicated because there has to be a mechanism for internal communication, not least at times when people can't meet physically, uh, which will not then be plucked out of its immediate context and scrutinised and poured over and perhaps become a frenzied, sensational front-page story at another point. Um, and uh, I've understood 
those who have had some doubts about the Freedom of Information Act in that context, including Blair himself, who called it the biggest mistake ever uh, in his period in power, in quite a competitive field for mistakes, it has to be said. Um, so it is a complicated issue. However, Johnson announced this inquiry. He chose to do it in the way that he did, and the inquiry was given the power it needed to ask for whatever information uh, it deemed necessary. So to rewrite the rules, and this is something this government often tries to do, subsequently, it seems to me, is wrong. Um, there might have been a way, although it is difficult to find a form of words when the inquiry began, which gave some leeway for the government to protect some of the sort of casual exchanges that took place over WhatsApp during that period. Anyway, I suspect, you know, this theory that Sunak's got something to hide and is trying to cover something up. Well, let's see. Uh, I think we all know the outline of each person's role during COVID. And by the way, Sunak's was a pretty terrible one, uh, encouraging a loosening of lockdown, most famously of all, uh, in the early autumn of 2020, when COVID was raging once more, all he was bothered about was businesses opening up. Um, and, and we know that already. And he tried to encourage Johnson to return to his own libertarian instincts. And Britain was in a very dangerous place at that moment. And Sunak was one of the instruments of the danger. But we know all that. So whether there is much more to learn from the WhatsApps in terms of being scandalised, I doubt. Um, but yeah, what is the mechanism whereby ministers, civil servants can have conversations without fear of them being revealed in full, uncensored, non-censored ways, just perhaps a few months or a couple of years later? So that's complicated. But the role of Johnson as a former Prime Minister is much clearer. Uh, he is trouble uh, for his successor. He would, I suspect, have been trouble for his immediate successor, but she only lasted a few weeks. And he has become a nightmare in a way for Sunak on many different levels. First of all, Johnson has rationalised in his own distorted mind uh, that Sunak brought him down. He has forgotten, and Johnson's relationship with the recent past is as, in some ways, more unreliable than his relationship with the truth at any other point of chronology you choose to um, examine. Uh, it, he, in July of last year, was unable to form a government. It was not Sunak's resignation, which was the driving force behind the collapse of his leadership. It was the many, many diverge and different decisions. I mean, Sunak doesn't have a big following of Sunakite, certainly didn't then as a chancellor. Uh, it was a series of separate decisions, not wholly coordinated by a range of people in despair about Johnson's misconduct, about bloody time let's be frank, um, that meant he had no choice but to go. Remember, he tried to cling on to the last possible minute, 
long after, in terms of long hours after Sunak had resigned, tried to form another government. He appointed another chancellor when Sunak went, um, having every intention of keeping going. But he had lost the support of his existing government and couldn't form another one. And that was the immediate reason why he went. And evidence is surfacing uh, to the point where the only question to be asked now is how he lasted as long as he did. Um, and there are broader questions. Many of you emailed me about it after my interview with Anthony Selden, who's written this biography of Johnson, um, why um, he got there in the first place. Those are urgent and valid questions. His question, which is, how dare Sunak bring me down when I won that majority in December 2019, um, is not valid. It is a sort of fantasy view of politics. But that's clearly one of his drives. He is a vindictive character. He doesn't forgive those who he believes has uh, impeded his uh, unyielding ambition, and Sunak is a target. And he is to some extent because he doesn't take this inquiry seriously. It's the past. The past has happened. He's not burdened with great outbreaks of guilt. Um, and so it's a game for him in which Sunak is a target. Uh, but it's more than that. Here he is, a former prime minister, at a key moment in Sunak's leadership when he tried to sort out the mess of the Northern Ireland Protocol with the so-called Windsor framework. Johnson could, if he was a figure of any depth, have backed it and said, look, uh, I had no choice but to sign up to the protocol. It was rushed. We had to get out of the logjam of Brexit and get it done. Um, but I appreciate that uh, Rishi Sunak has uh, had a difficult inheritance in this respect, and he sorted it out, and I support him fully, and I will vote for it. He didn't do that. He voted against it, along with Liz Truss, another prime minister causing a fair amount of trouble. And that is combined with the sense, although there is little evidence to suggest that there are many in the restive Tory parliamentary party who still back Johnson's fantastical ambition, uh, Johnson himself has it and um, has decided clearly to stay in politics. He's earning a fortune outside. He could continue to do so. He's only staying in in the hope that he can return to the very top of politics as leader of the Tory party, preferably for him in number 10, the more glamorous altar. But I have no doubt that if the opportunity arose and he thought he had a realistic chance of winning, he would go for the leadership in opposition too. Uh, and this is always unnerving for a sitting prime minister uh, to know that you've got a former prime minister who is a critic of what you are doing and who is willing to make clear that you are being deeply critical of what is happening. Um, of all the things I think that uh, tormented John Major most in the early phase of his leadership, it was Margaret Thatcher's disloyalty to him. She gave several interviews where she made clear that she thought Major was betraying her legacy uh, over Europe specifically, but on other matters too. And uh, Major found it very, very difficult to take. Uh, he wasn't expecting it. Thatcher had backed him in the leadership 
And he knew that not only was she speaking out, but encouraging Tories to rebel over the Maastricht Treaty in the House of Commons. Um, and he was deeply affected by it and tormented by it. Um, and so you can imagine Sunak, uh, a less experienced prime minister, the major in the sense that major had held a whole range of cabinet posts before becoming prime minister, uh, will be deeply troubled. And then there is Johnson's capacity to command media attention. Uh, in recent days, Johnson has had as much coverage as Sunak. Uh, and all of it in the context of this internal tension over what is and isn't released to the inquiry that Johnson himself set up. And that too is problematic for Sunak because when the media become hooked on a character, and they've always been hooked on Johnson, uh, they will not get unhooked. It feeds on itself. So when this story fades, um, there will be other Johnson related stories. The inquiry itself will become quite soon, I think, a long-running story. As I see, even those, and perhaps it's most voters, sadly and unfortunately, with short memories, uh, will still perhaps follow the soap opera linked to the inquiry, if not the more detailed forensic evidence-taking. Um, and so it spells trouble for Sunet because there is a broader impression which is created of a disturbed party. Uh, and former prime ministers have that capacity. When they stir, it looks a bit odd, and as if a party has not come to terms with its own past, and that past is uh, having a deep bearing on the present and in a disruptive way. Um, and so Johnson matters in that sense. I don't think he does in terms of being a potential Leader before the election, that's not going to happen. Sunak will take the Tories into the election. And I suspect his leadership ambitions, one way or another, are over um, in reality, not necessarily in his mind. Uh, but it still conveys an impression of trouble. And in a way, the role of former prime ministers in Britain is linked more to trouble than anything else. It's a very ill-defined role. And famously now, there are lots of former prime ministers because they got the job at a young age uh, and therefore left at a relatively young age. And they all have one thing in common, I think, uh, or nearly all of them, which is this, that having got to the very top, they work on the assumption that they have unique insights in terms of how their party wins elections and how their party governs. Um, they've done it and therefore they know and they are one of the very few, again, listen back to the podcast about the prime ministers we never had, they are one of the very few to get there. And that gives them, in their own view, a kind of special sense of insight, which tends to cause trouble for those currently navigating the... Um, nightmarish challenges of leadership. Tony Blair is interesting because I know that uh, he, he said this to me once when he was Prime Minister, that when he left, he wouldn't be in any way at all a backseat driver. Uh, it was a role that he saw others fulfilling. He saw Heath doing it to Thatcher. 
Thatcher doing it to Major. He wasn't going to do it. Uh, but he is in a big way and has been a factor for all his successors, of course, most of them in opposition. Uh, he kept out of the way with Gordon Brown, but of course, quite a few Tony Blair supporters made Gordon Brown's life hellish as prime minister. They attempted to get rid of him several times in coups that I've got no doubt, or attempted coups, had a big impact on the way Labour was perceived by 2010. Again, a deeply disturbed party. Prime Minister, who they're attempting to get rid of all the time, is not one that's going to command a great deal of wider support when an election is held. Um, with Ed Miliband, you got sort of a sense that Blair was privately critical of what Miliband was trying to do. Um, and then with Corbyn, he was quite open about it and was privately encouraging the formation of a new political party. Uh, and when one was formed and failed, he rationalised that there was a supply problem, not a demand problem for what he regards as the centre ground. Uh, but he was unquestionably one of those who helped to convey an impression of a party completely unworthy of electoral success because when it's fighting on the scale it was then, um, it wasn't going to be able to govern very smoothly. With Starmer, it's a different story. I think that um, after Starmer got a um, sort of terrible bout of low confidence when the Tories gained Hartlepool as a by-election, when there was enough material already against Boris Johnson to fill a whole court case, um, and the sort of Blair and Co leapt at that point and um, have been a very big influence on uh, Keir Starmer. And in a way, it's quite hard to breathe as a Labour leader in that context because you want to be a winner. And so there is a temptation to turn to the party's very few winners for advice. They think they know how to win. And yet... It is inevitably inauthentic if you are following a path pursued by others in an entirely new context. Um, so there's another form of Prime Minister. They're all at it one way or another. Gordon Brown, in a different way, of course, has been overtly contributing. He's done a big report at Keir Starmer's request on constitutional reform with some important proposals. Um, and in a way, that's a more straightforward way of um, influencing. But there are kind of all dangers. I mean, some shadow cabinet people tell me some of those uh, that have been advising Keir, some of them are refighting the sort of Blair-Brown battles of 2005 to 2007, some of them, and which is crazy, just absolutely crazy. Um, so anyway, these former prime ministers breathe on awkwardly and I think do make life very difficult for current leaders. And for Sunak, who waits every day to see headlines about Johnson, switches the telly on, seeing Johnson um, being doorstepped as he goes for his early morning jog close to his new beautiful house in Oxfordshire, it is uh, very difficult to convey two things that you have to convey as a long-serving government. Calm, competence, and a sense of owning the future. You can't do that when you are being so burdened by the personification of the immediate past. And that, of course, will apply to whoever takes over from Sunak 
if the likes of Johnson are still sitting there in the House of Commons causing trouble. And now let's go over to all of you. And for those of you who want to join in our never-ending discussion at the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, it's SteveRick14 at iCloud.com. Uh, really keen to hear from those of you who haven't emailed before. Please uh, do join in the conversation. Say so it's a never-ending, like, you know, Bob Dylan's never-ending tour. We're in a never-ending uh, conversation. And... Uh, I get a lot of emails about the interviews we did, and thanks for those of you who said you enjoyed the one where we delved deep about the modern Tory party with uh, Tim Bale last week. And, uh, of course, the week before, I was exploring the centre ground with Raphael Baer. He's written a book uh, partly about the centre ground. As you know, I'm a centre ground sceptic. Uh, I don't really think it exists, and I'm very suspicious of the term so imprecise, uh, like the term reform. Uh, some of you kindly pointed out that um, there was an article in The Economist this week about the imprecision of the term reform. It's being used as if it solves everything without anyone explaining what they mean by it. And of course, people mean different things by it. Um, anyway, with reference to that, Dan Benton said, um, yeah, oh, he listens to the podcast during his daily dog walk. That is a common activity, the dog walk, whilst listening to uh, rock and roll politics. Uh, Dan says, during your recent interview with Raphael Baer, Raph mentioned that during the 2017 election, many people only voted Labour because they were sure Labour wasn't going to win. I've seen that assertion several times in analysis of 2017, and it seems a remarkable claim. We're not usually treated to such speculation into voters' inner minds, even when they deliver surprising results. I wondered what you thought about that. Is it a reflection of focus groups or some kind of polling? Uh, I don't think it is, actually, Dan. It's an interesting question because it, it does imply an insight into voters' inner minds. I think it's a myth. And I think that the 2017 election, one that, as I discussed with Raf, has been in my view, too prematurely airbrushed out of history, needs much greater exploration uh, because it didn't result in the commentariat's assumption and the parliamentary class's assumption about what the outcome would be that it's just been dismissed, um, whereas I think it is an interesting one. In fact, I think that the fact that uh, even some candidates, Labour Council were saying at the time, Quite openly, you can, it's all right, you can vote for me because we're not going to win. Um, I think that made it harder for Labour in 2017, not easier, uh, because it just makes them all look as if they're fighting each other uh, to some sort of hellish place. Um, so, no, I don't think it's true. I think the 2017, there are other things. Peter Mandelson says it was all about Brexit uh, that explains why Labour did better than expected in 2017. Funnily enough, Brexit didn't really feature much in the 2017 election. Um, I think there were other factors to explain it, um, which are troubling for those who claim to be on the centre ground, because it wasn't a centrist's election. Um, when I say centrist, I, mean, I, I think I am. 
we all think we are. Um, it wasn't how they perceive the centre ground centrists' election. Um, the Tories were moving back to a sort of interesting one-nation conservatism, but of course combining it with a pledge to deliver the Brexit referendum. Um, and Labour was sort of close to um, a more Northern European manifesto. Uh, as Raphael Baer said, you know, it was not that much more left than the SDP manifesto in 1983. And in David Owen, who I bumped into during that election campaign, who of course was part of the Gang of Four of the SDP, said it reminded him of the 83 SDP election. And he made a donation to Corbyn's Labour Party in 2017. Um, so that's why it's so interesting to explore with Raf and others what they really mean by centrism. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Mike Middleton said, with the Bank of England governor coming in for a lot of criticism for his handling of monetary policy, uh, Mike Middleton, who says he, he's writing and listening from the sunny south coast, did Gordon Brown make a mistake in making the Bank of England independent? It's, it's a really interesting question in the light of the criticisms. You see, here are elected politicians um, who have ultimate responsibility for the economy and are accountable for the economy, have very limited control. They do have some, but limited control over what the Bank of England decide in relation to monetary policy, specifically the level of interest rates. And the current governor is coming in for a lot of criticism. Uh, Liz Truss tried to blame him partly for what was going on, um, which does raise the question, all right then, would it have been better that these highly sensitive decisions were made by those who were elected and um, were accountable to voters for what happened. That argument is quite strong to this very day. But I think in, uh, you know, to this very day, that move in 1997, just about the first move made by that Labour government to make the Bank of England independence, was and is a masterstroke. It created space for them to do so much more than they could have done otherwise, given how wary the mighty markets are of Labour governments. We're about to discover that again. It absolutely gave confidence in the markets to that Labour government. It is the only Labour government not to have endured a major sort of sterling crisis. Uh, you know, the, the 67 when Labour had to devalue the pound, Harold Wilson never really recovered. It was the same for the 45 Labour government. They were forced to devalue towards the end of their first period in power, and they never really recovered. And it gave a sort of stability. Um, but there are issues, as you imply from the sunny South Coast, Mike, about elected politicians giving away that degree of power. Tom Smith, oh yeah, now I must apologise for this. Uh, Tom has noted uh, that in the last podcast, and he says, I think on the previous one, uh, you said that we've had four prime ministers since the 2010 election, but we've had five. Which one are you forgetting? I, I'm going crazy. Uh, of course it's five. I'm, I'm so shocked when I say, when I think about it. I mean, five prime ministers uh, since that 2010 election. 
so many of them elected by the party membership alone. Uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak being two of them. Johnson was originally, May was originally, and uh, only, only Cameron got in as prime minister winning a general election. Uh, it is weird that there has been that level of instability at the very top of a governing party, and yet one that has continued to win elections. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Richard Harrison writes to say, uh, the current debate about funding in education, student fees and so on, and Labour have made a significant move on that front recently. We might explore that um, on another podcast. Uh, he says, the current de debate ignores the crisis that's now facing further education. What money is available for education goes primarily to schools, and while higher education is facing huge financial challenges, we've effectively shifted the funding issue there over to the students themselves. So that kind of sorts that one out, he's saying. But further education has been systematically underfunded, a situation that's only getting worse and which is now jeopardising the type of skills provision we say we know is desperately needed to support economic growth, as well as levelling up if that remains a thing. Yeah, and it's a good point. It's a sort of unglamorous focus. Uh, and uh, in, in the longer email uh, Richard makes the point that most journalists and so on went to university and don't have that feel for uh, further education. But he makes an important point about it because the focus on skills, training and economic growth should, in theory, place further education much closer to the centre of the stage. Um, and it really needs to be part of a wider recalibration about education, where in uh, here, much less so in Germany, you know, there is the gilded path of the private school, Oxbridge, going then into politics and all the rest of it. Uh, but where are the skills being learnt to be productive and to make the economy grow? And remember, one of Starmer's missions is to have the highest growth rate in the G7. Uh, where are the skill set going to come from? One of the kind of good ideas although, again, funding is so problematic, especially before an election with the bonkers tax and spend debate we have in this country. I'll come on to that in a second. Um, is where you're going to get the skills from. Uh, in that sort of John McDonnell Corbyn era, they were planning a sort of national education service, uh, lifelong, with a focus on skills. Um, now, of course, it was kind of condemned as planning and Stalinist and all the rest of it. Um, but there was something to it. Um, but thank you for alerting us to that particular underfunded sector, which, as long as it remains underfunded and uh, sort of lower down in terms of prestige, Britain's growth rate will continue to struggle. Yeah, but well, I had a call from a uh, call email from Laundry Joe, so called because he does his laundry whilst listening, uh, giving what he thinks Starmer's answers should be to the whole tax and spend debate. And uh, some of it was very good, but it included quite a lot of commitments, which I think they will make, which will cause kind of problems, including sticking to Tory tax and spend plans. Uh, Joe, I think, says for three years, uh, borrowing to invest in certain ways. I mean, they sort of are saying this, Laundry Joe, but I don't know if any of you clocked that the I paper last week played the sort of Daily Mail game of saying Labour's sums don't add up and they're the 
you know, hidden tax bombshells to come and all the rest of it. And they've been so cautious about spending um, to the point where the Tories could sort of take themes like childcare and claim them for themselves because of this spending rigidity, which is there because of the pre-election tax and spend debate in Britain, makes all kinds of investments seem like a sin. And it's a real problem. Uh, anyway, thank you very much. Let's now move on to, um, uh, sorry, I'm going down the list here. Andy, maybe, who listens whilst baking, laments the demise of the long-form political interview. Another baker. You know what bakers do in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, Andy? Um, they offer me bread. That's what Helen does, who listens and bakes. Um, so I look forward to your bread. Anyway, back to your point. Yeah, the... the we all miss the long-form political interview, okay? But he says, could the problem not just be the broadcaster's priorities, um, but the lack of high-caliber politicians willing to put themselves up to such scrutiny? Um, yeah, that is a real uh, issue as well. And I used to discuss with Andrew Marr when he did his Sunday program how difficult it was in an era where there are fewer weighty politicians around. So one of the reasons why the Walden programme was much quoted by Rob Burley when I interviewed him about his book on the political interview, uh, uh, Walden was a charismatic interviewer and they did let the interviews breathe, but the interviewees were more interesting in that era of the 80s, late 70s. Um, we analysed the Thatcher interview Walden did, but you know there were many other big figures on both sides. Labour in the 80s, though they lost elections, had heavyweights galore for fascinating political interviews. So it's a fair point. Um, enjoy the baking, Andy. Caroline Morgan actually writes about the BBC uh, a bit of time ago, but I thought I'd put it in because Andy had written about that. She wonders about, says, all my instincts support the BBC, but I've been endlessly disappointed by the Brexit coverage, presenting both sides during the referendum as if having equal weight and equal support amongst economists. And since June 2016, the failure to present Remain rejoin arguments or even to cover events such as the rejoin march last October. Reporters such as Ross Atkins stand out for their fact-checking work, but there are a few others. Uh, lots of good people have left. What's going on? I think the departure of some of the big presenters from Andrew Marr to John Sopel, Emily Maitlis and others um, is, is a big big issue and 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 the senior manager i suppose some of them are, are wholly indifferent to it it seems to me uh in ways that are really alarming for the bbc they are so distant from the output they don't really know there was a real fuss recently when a presenter i forgot which one now was removed from a radio four slot on a saturday morning the reverend coles richard coles uh because his saturday show was being moved to cardiff or somewhere and uh, he, he expressed disappointment that virtually nothing was made of it. But, but for the sort of senior management figures, his presenting and departure would be tiny, marginal, peripheral stuff. They're at meetings and, you know, there's a huge divide between those who personify the output presenters, uh, interviewers, and so on, and the layers of management who are in another place. And it's a dangerous one. Uh, Paul Cooper wonders about what's happening internationally and the implications for Keir Starmer here. He says, Finland, Sweden, Greece, Turkey, 
all recently were fails for left of centre political parties. Uh, Biden seems to be unable to shake off a Republican return next year. We'll see, Paul, that's not definite. France, German and Italian left of centre political parties also failing in recent elections. Um, well, that's not in Germany. Uh, I don't think that's the case, is it? Uh, the left of centre or well, the SPD won, in effect. But anyway, uh, is Starmer and Labour as a left centre party going to buck this wider international trend? Or will the trend follow in the UK as well? Predictions are pointless, Paul, as we all know, but I think context matters. So, for example, with Biden, there is always intense criticism of a president midterm. I know we're coming towards the end of the midterm period and the run-up to the next presidential election, uh, but he did win. He won last time on a programme that, again, challenges this view of centrism because, of course, the self-proclaimed centrists said Biden was very much their candidate. But Biden was planning to spend quite a lot, borrow quite a lot, made that clear during the election, and won, even though Trump didn't recognise it. Um, so now he's fighting as an incumbent, um, and that is uh, uh, more problematic. Uh, but you're right, there is no sort of big trend, as there was to some extent in the late 1990s, uh, towards left-of-centre parties internationally. And it's more fractured and splintered than that which is why those who point to the British elections in 1974 when there were two general elections, both very close, uh, might be onto something, but who knows? Um, I say it's the next election won't be until the autumn of next year, so we're a long way from that. Uh, white van man Andy Davis took heart from an interesting tweet from the uh, FT, the Financial Times, which analyzes all the data uh, explaining why a group of US hardline conservatives brought the National Conservative Conference to London and it fell completely flat. Why? The FT looked at the data and one of its many conclusions was that the UK conservatives are way more liberal than US Republicans on every measure. And that's why it will be harder for it to be cemented within um, uh, the right in a British context. And that is interesting with White Van Man Andy, because he did write a few weeks ago saying he thought that conference would resonate with his fellow drivers who he hangs out and has drinks with at the end of a long, long day. So it's interesting that Andy takes heart from uh, that. And there are other reasons too. It's very interesting. Social reforms are implemented noisily, social liberal reforms, uh, with noisy protest, but they endure, unlike a lot of other economic and public service reforms. Look at Jenkins' reforms in the late 60s on abortion and homosexuality. The Labour, New Labour and Cameron reforms relating to uh, same-sex couples. They endure, and one of the reasons they endure is that a significant section of the Tory party backed them. And uh, whereas in uh, that sort of Republican America culture, there is much greater levels of intense social conservatism. Well, haven't we ranged widely in our time together? Uh, and yeah, uh, we've, we, we've waded across the complex wilds of the political terrain uh, together. And hopefully we've all helped to make sense 
of it all. So thank you so much for tuning in. If you could leave a rating, yeah, I sometimes forget to ask you to do that. Uh, that would be great, but only if you like it, preferably love it. Uh, do leave a rating. Uh, again, thanks for subscribing to Patreon. Please do if you want to delve even deeper in our times together um, and support the fact that this is edited. I sometimes forget to say this as well by the great podmasters. Uh, so I'd like to thank uh, all of them as well. And yeah, let's get together very soon. There'll be a great interview later this week. Uh, and then we all need to get together to make sense of it all. Thanks so much. See you soon. Bye.